Um, I told people, uh, some people were like, well, you have to work on your birthday. I was like, no, I get to tell people about Jesus on my birthday. And so uh, if you brought your Bibles, you can open them to Mark chapter 8. We've been in this series uh, looking at the essential gospel of Mark, looking at Jesus as uh, Mark's, Mark's picture of Jesus and who he is. And he says, this, this thing, this mystery you've been given to know, like it's, it's discoverable, it's, it's, under, it's understandable. Uh, last week we talked about uh, interruptions. Were any of you interrupted this week? And we looked at interruptions not as, not as something that pulls us out of our business, but Jesus was in the business of interruptions. And, and so my week was, was interrupted uh, with all of these divine moments for me to speak the words of God, words of life, words of hope into others' lives. I hope you, hope you took advantage of that as well. Today I've got a, a tough task because I'm going to try to get us all the way through chapter 8 and into a part of chapter 9, and, and so I've got to go quick if we're going to do this in any kind of timely manner. Um, this week as we look at chapter 8, uh, as Mark does, even as we talked last week, uh, Mark has a way of stacking stories together to add to their meaning. So if you look at it, look at his stories individually, you, there's, there's definitely meaning there. But when you see how these stories are all sandwiched together, it, it creates layer upon layer upon layer, deeper and deeper levels of meaning. And Mark chapter 8 begins that way. It begins with, with a story that can exist on its own, but in the context of the whole chapter, you'll see how it gives even more light to us. It begins, I'm just going to summarize uh, the first 10 verses of Mark chapter 8. Jesus in the wilderness, large crowds of people are following him, and it's becoming late, it's getting late, and it, it is time for the people to eat, but they've come and followed him, and, and they're out of food. And I love this story because you see this compassionate Jesus in Mark. It's such a compassionate picture. Jesus, Jesus doesn't want to send them home. It even says, Mark says, he's worried that if he sends them home, they might faint on the way because they're weak and they're tired. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and says, feed them. And the disciples say, with what? How could we possibly feed all of these people? And I love the question that Jesus asked. I could do a whole series on this one question. But Jesus simply tells them, well, how much bread do you have? How many times have you not helped because of what you didn't have? And here's an awesome example. Jesus says, look, I know you don't have enough to feed 4,000. How much do you have? And Jesus gives us his example. This is an awesome teaching as we get into Thanksgiving and Christmas and Advent, all that kind of stuff. You, you aren't supposed to give what you don't have. You're just supposed to give what you do have. And so Jesus challenged him, well, well, what do you have? And he said, well, we have seven loaves and we've got a couple of fish. And guess what? Through the work and the miracle of Jesus, turns out to be enough. And after he feeds the 4,000, everyone ate as much as they wanted. Uh, Jesus jumps in a boat and sails to this place called Damanutha, uh, across the, the Galilean Sea. And that's where I want to pick us up today in verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 11. Look what it says. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had arrived, he's, he's across the sea. The Pharisees, they came and they started to argue with him, testing him. They demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. Now, what has Jesus been doing the whole time, right? What has he just done? 
He just fed 4,000 with seven loaves. We even think, uh, some scholars think this region he's in, this Dalmuthia area, is the, is the area where, uh, you remember Jesus crossed the sea and this crazy wild man runs out of the graveyard, remember? And he's possessed with all these demons. The demon's name is Legion. Jesus sends him in a pig. And, and then this guy, this previously possessed man, is supposed to go to the, the towns, the 10 towns of this area, and tell them who Jesus is. And so... The Pharisees, we think maybe from that same area, are coming in and saying, give us a sign. And, and, and you're supposed to see, hey, why is the, the light bulb, something just disconnected here, right? Like, what's going on? Why, what do you mean, give us a sign? And it has to do with the Jewish understanding of the Messiah. You see, Jews were, were an oppressed people for hundreds of years. Uh, if, you, if you back up, um, there, there's a time of occupation by the Assyrians, uh, the Babylonians, and now the Romans. I mean, you have to, to kind of understand this world concept that, that, that they are, the Jews live in an occupied country. There's another force that occupies their area, and that force, the Romans, get to make all the rules. There was even a Jewish philosopher named Philo. He said this uh, about the Messiah. When, when, as an occupied people, they were looking at this Messiah as, as, as someone who would redeem them, draw them out of this occupation. They were looking for a military leader, and Philo said that the Messiah would take the field and make war and destroy great and populous nations. And so when the Jews, uh, when the Pharisees show up to Jesus and say, give us a sign that you're the Messiah, they're looking for a military sign. They're looking for maybe something like this. Go ahead and roll that clip. I need to warn you, this is a, this is a little rough. Uh, this is not a church clip, <laughs> if that makes sense. But on purpose, it's going to make a point. Hopefully. I want you to remember that no bastard ever won war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. And then all this stuff you've heard about America not wanting to fight, wanting to stay out of the war, is a lot of horse dung. Americans traditionally love to fight. 
All real Americans love the sting of battle. When you were kids, you all admired the champion marble shooter, the fastest runner, big league ball players, the toughest boxers. Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. Americans play to win all the time. I wouldn't give a hoot in hell for a man who lost and laughed. That's why Americans have never lost and will never lose a war. Because the very thought of losing is hateful to Americans. Now, an army is a team. It lives, eats, sleeps, fights as a team. This individuality stuff is a bunch of crap. The bilious bastards who wrote that stuff about individuality for the Saturday Evening Post don't know anything more about real battle than they do about fornicating. Now, we have the finest food and equipment, the best spirit, and the best men in the world. You know, by God, I actually pity those poor bastards we're going up against. By God, I do. We're not just going to shoot the bastards. We're going to cut out their living guts and use them to grease the treads of our tanks. We're going to murder those lousy Hun bastards by the bushel. Now, some of you boys, I know a wondering whether or not you'll chicken out under fire. Don't worry about it. I can assure you that you will all do your duty. The Nazis are the enemy. Wade into them. Spill their blood. Shoot them in the belly. When you put your hand into a bunch of goo that a moment before was your best friend's face, you know what to do. Now, there's another thing I want you to remember. I don't want to get any messages saying that we are holding our position. We're not holding anything. Let the Hun do that. We are advancing constantly, and we're not interested in holding on to anything except the enemy. We're going to hold on to him by the nose, and we're going to kick him in the ass. We're going to kick the hell out of him all the time, and we're going to go through him like crap through a goose. Now, there's one thing that you men will be able to say when you get back home. And you may thank God for it. Thirty years from now, when you're sitting around your fireside with your grandson on your knee, and he asks you, what did you do in the great World War II, you won't have to say, well, I shoveled shit in Louisiana. All right, now you sons of bitches, you know how I feel. Oh.
And I will be proud to lead you wonderful guys into battle anytime, anywhere. That's all. All right, so I know I'm going to get emails this week. I get it. The language is horrible, totally inappropriate. I, I know, but uh, bear with me. This is to make a point. Because the Jews fundamentally uh, misunderstand who and what the Messiah is. Okay, when the Jews are thinking about Messiah, the Jews are thinking about Christ. This is what they're picturing. Do you get it? And when the Pharisees approach Jesus and say, these Pharisees who've been occupied by Assyrians, Babylonians, who are now under foreign occupation by the Romans, when the Pharisees show up and say to Jesus, give us a sign, they could care less about feeding hungry people. They want a sign of tanks. They want a sign of, of dominance, of power, of authority, violent, nationalistic. The Jewish mindset of a Messiah is a perfect picture of Hitler. I mean, uh, not Hitler, uh, Patton. That's the other guy. <laughs> the Jews are thinking about this destructive, vengeful, powerful warrior hero. Are you with me? And the Jews are asking for the Messiah. This is who they're praying for. This is what they're wanting to come. This is the Messiah. This is a perfect picture of the Messiah they expect. Think about the leaders. Think about the heroes of the Old Testament. Who do they resemble? Right? Warriors. This is the sign they want. The Pharisees approach Jesus and say, show us a sign like this. And look at the next verse. Look what happens in verse 12. When he heard this, I love this. You should underline this in your Bible. When the Pharisees say, show us a sign of dominance and power and authority and strength, vengeance. It says that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. Why? Because they don't get it. He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why did these people keep demanding a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth. I will not give this generation any such sign. And he left. He gets back in the boat and heads back back across the lake. Now remember, these stories are stacked together. We've, we've, we've had the bread story. Now we've had the denial of a, of, a, of a sign, of a Messiah sign. Look at this next story in chapter, uh, chapter 8, verses 14 through 21. As he gets in the back in the boat, this is the boat scene right after leaving the Pharisees. But the disciples had forgotten to bring any food. They had only one loaf of bread with them in the boat. And as they were crossing the lake, you can see Jesus is still kind of mulling over what happened. They showed up. They want a sign. That's not the right kind of sign. Jesus warned them. He said, watch out. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and, and of Herod. 
And yeast for a Jewish mindset is, is kind of this evil mindset, this almost like the evil eye kind of idea. Uh, uh, yeast usually represents evil, but, but here it repre- represents misunderstanding. Jesus says, beware of the misunderstanding of the Pharisees and, and of Herod. And at this, the disciples began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. Don't tell me Mark's not ironic, Right? Jesus mentions yeast. Now they're arguing about bread. And Jesus knew what they were saying. So he said to them, why are you arguing about having no bread? Don't you know or understand even yet? Do you see this? Don't you know? Don't you understand? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes. Can't you see? You have ears. Can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? And then he quizzes them. Hey, remember when I fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread? How many baskets of leftovers did, did you pick up? And they're like, 12. We remember that. And then Jesus says, remember, I just, I, we were just over here and I fed 4,000. How many large baskets of bread did we pick, leftovers did we pick up? And they said, seven. And Jesus says, you remember the details of all of this, but you don't even understand what it means. And look at this question. He says, don't you understand yet? Jesus is trying to warn his disciples about misunderstanding who he is, who who the Messiah is. He's warning them. And all the disciples can think about is, Oh, man, who, who forgot to bring the bread? The bread of life is in the boat with them, right? The one who can make bushels and bushels of bread out of nothing. And Jesus says, don't you understand yet? And I love this question. There's a part of it that, that, that implies, uh, I love that he puts the yet in there because it means it, it, it's, it's open-ended. Like, like uh, who is Jesus and, and what does it mean to follow him? It, it, he says it almost in the, in the form of an invitation to, to keep after it. Like, come on, you can do this. You can understand. You can see this. I know, I know you can get this. Keep pursuing Keep chasing until you can get this. I want you to get this. And so to stack layer upon layer upon layer, story upon story, Jesus, Mark inserts this next story that happens in uh, the verses 22 through 26. Look at this. See how all these layers fit together. We had Jesus uh, uh, feeds the 4,000 with bread. Pharisees ask for a sign of Patton. Disciples, no clue. <laughs> in the boat still. And then Jesus, uh, Mark inserts this story right at this moment. He says, when they arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. And Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Then spitting on the man's eyes, spit was this kind of had this, I don't know, this, this idea of like a healing natural kind of thing. I don't know. Uh, it w- he wasn't trying to be gross. Um, then spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, can you see anything now? And the man looked around. Yes, he said, I, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. This is really important. They, they look like trees walking around. 
Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were open. His sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. Jesus sent him away, saying, don't go back into the village on your way home. All right, something happens in this healing story that doesn't happen in any other story, any other miracle story of Jesus. Do you know what it is? It doesn't work. At least it doesn't work initially. Do you see that? Jesus, is there any other instance that you can think of, uh, of raising the dead, of of, uh, healing a woman who has bleeding, or uh, is there any other instance in Scripture where it doesn't take place right then at that exact moment? Is there any other instance in Scripture where Jesus has to take two tries? No, this is it. This is it. So, so he spits on the man's eyes and says, can you see? And he says, I, yeah, I, I, I can kind of see, but, but, but I can't see clearly. And Jesus only, <laughs> is the only miracle of Jesus in Scripture that doesn't seem to be immediately successful. And so Jesus places his hand on the man's eyes. Now, are you seeing how all these things fit together? Are you seeing it? See how symbolic this is of where the Pharisees are, of where the disciples are, who, who process, um, uh, 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 you, you see this process of things kind of being revealed. They're, they're getting a glimpse of Jesus, right? The Pharisees see Jesus, but they are, they're not seeing him clearly, right? The disciples are even in the boat. They've seen all the elements, and they can tell you exactly what happened. But you can tell there's something with their sight. It's still not clear. Even Jesus says, you have eyes to see, but you, you can't. And so what does he do in the very next story? He heals a blind man. But it requires a second touch. To see clearly, the blind man requires a second touch. And so do the disciples. They need that second touch. And so do we. So let's keep going. Verses 27 through 30. As we we move through, I know this is stacking on. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. And as they were walking along, he asked them, Who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say uh, uh, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say you are one of the prophets. So Jesus asked the disciples, well, what do, let's put it this way. What do people see when they look at me? Right? Who do people say that I am? And what are their answers? Uh, prophets, Elijah, John the Baptist. I mean, these are good, noble answers, but they're all wrong, right? So they don't know. What, what do people see when they see Jesus? Uh, I, don't, I don't really know. It's kind of, I see something. It's kind of like t- trees walking around. And then Jesus turns to the disciples, and this is the big one. But who do you say I am? This is the big question in Mark, chapter 8, right in the middle, the very core of Mark's whole gospel. Everything hinges on this one question. It's the question that the disciples ask in the boat during the storm. Remember what they say, 
Who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And Mark tells us in chapter 1, verse 1, he tells us exactly who Jesus is. He answers this question. This is the good news of the Messiah, the Jesus Christ, right? And so Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Who do you say I am? And Peter, like a man, steps up. He says, You are the Messiah. And he couldn't be more right. And he couldn't be more wrong. Because essentially, I think what happens, and you'll see in this next episode, Peter steps up to Jesus and says, You are Patton. Let's look at the next, next story. Verses 31 through 33, it says, Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He tells them that this Messiah, this Christ, would be killed. But three days later, he would rise from the dead. And as he was talking about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand Jesus the Messiah, right? Uh, the language is the exact same language of Jesus calming the storm. Yikes. So Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such thing. And Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples then reprimanded Peter with maybe the harshest words in all of Scripture. He says, get behind me, Satan. And he said, you are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God. So let's walk through this. Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter jumps up and says, you're the Messiah. And so, but Jesus knows that the Messiah he's thinking is not the Messiah that he is. Does that make sense? Are you with me? He's right, but he's completely wrong at the same time. He's the Messiah, but, but not the one you're thinking. And so Jesus turns Peter's response into a question and says, okay, so, so what does being Christ, the Messiah, mean? And if you were to ask Peter, well, what does it mean to be the Messiah? Peter would have described Patton. Powerful, authoritative, vengeance, army, war. And Jesus says, let me tell you what it means to be the Messiah. In verse 31, he says, the Son of Man must suffer. The Messiah must suffer many terrible things. And, and, and this same Messiah that, that you're expecting, this, that's not right. This Messiah is going to be rejected by the elders and the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. And, and I want you to know this too. He's going to raise, be raised again, but this Messiah is going to die. And to Peter, this is preposterous. Do you get how big this is? Are you with me? Are you awake out there? Are you following? Is this too much for you? Okay. And, and this is such a preposterous idea to Peter that he begins to speak to Jesus Christ like a child, right? Don't you say such things. He begins to reprimand the one that he just called the Messiah. So if that also says, hey, clearly not understanding who you are here. And he begins to tell Jesus how 
his thinking about the, what the Messiah is is all wrong. Peter's idea of Messiah is all right. Jesus' idea of Messiah is all wrong. And how does this conversation go? Not good, right? Peter understood what Jesus was saying. He just couldn't accept it. It was an impossible picture of the Messiah, something completely different than what they were expecting. He, like all Jews, expected the Messiah to be a victorious national hero, not a suffering servant. They wanted Patton. They wanted a general, a warrior, a commander. They didn't want a Mother Teresa. Are you with me? And Jesus turns to him and says, get away from me, Satan. You know, the Jewish idea is somehow this Messiah is the one that's going to make others suffer. The Messiah can't suffer. The Messiah can't be, be vulnerable or humble or weak or the Messiah can't die. He's our hero. And, and, and kind of this whole idea is, as Peter's arguing for his idea of the Messiah, Jesus basically says to him, that's a devil of an idea. That idea that you have that, that somehow the Messiah is, is going to be free of pain and suffering and death and all of this other kind of stuff, that's a devil of an idea. Uh, have you, have you seen this in your own life? Satan's ideas and his seeds are usually the easy way out or have the appearance of it. You know what I'm talking about? Are you with me? Wouldn't it be easier if the Messiah was just a warrior, just came in and killed everybody that didn't like him? Wouldn't that be easier? And Jesus, nah. I remember what he says. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. He says, <laughs> you're just not getting it. He says, don't you understand yet? And then the next part, the last part, and I, and I know this is long, and I know this is a lot for your brain, but, but you're smart, and I trust you. He says, you're not seeing things clearly. And then it occurs to him, there's a bigger implication because if they're not seeing and understanding who the Messiah is and what it means to be the Christ clearly, then the implication is that they don't really understand what it means to be a Christ follower either. Are you with me? Because who Jesus is and what he does are intimately related to who his disciples are and what will be required of them. Are you with me? Look at these next few verses. Jesus says, oh man, you're not seeing the idea of the Messiah clearly, and that means maybe you don't know what it really means. Maybe you're misunderstanding what it means to be a follower. And so he says, let me re refresh you. Let me give you a different picture of what this Messiah is, and let me give you a different picture of what it means to be a follower of this kind of Messiah. And he calls the whole crowd. He doesn't just call the disciples. He said, I got I to gotta correct your sight here. It's time for a second touch. Calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, I'm going to give you a new definition of follower. You must turn from your selfish ways 
take up your cross and follow me. He says, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Jesus says, it's, it's, it's not the way of the conquering hero. It is the way of suffering. It is the way of rejection. It is the way of death. And he says you can't simply claim to be a follower and go on with life as usual because to be a follower, follower of Jesus will ultimately cost you your life. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been on the cross. I have experienced the nails and the pain and the anguish with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I love that, that Jesus includes this. I love that what he talks about as being a follower is, is a difficult, costly road. Because if, uh, I, I think it actually validates Christianity that Jesus is upfront and honest about this. Because if Jesus would have just said, you know, it's super easy to be my follower. Turn on the TV, TV evangelist, say a prayer, accept Christ. Boom, you're a follower. Heaven, all the good stuff. It's super cheap and easy and anyone can do it. Shouldn't that make you a little bit um, suspicious, right? If someone, if a salesman approaches you on the street and says, you know, this can change your life and it's super easy and it's, it's super cheap and anyone can do it, what's your first reaction? Yeah, right. But I think Jesus validates Christianity and says, this way is not easy. This way is difficult. It, re it requires you know, suffering and pain and rejection and sacrifice and all of that. It, it, he doesn't say it's impossible. I don't want you to get that, that feeling. But he says very clearly, this is not easy and it's costly. It's not impossible. But it is costly. Shouldn't the fact that Jesus tells us, hey, this is not hard and it's going to make you uncomfortable, shouldn't, shouldn't that lend credibility, credibility to this whole idea, right? How many people do you know who are claiming to be a follower of Christ and yet have no idea of what that truly means? Let me speak to the church in North America. Let's speak to the Christian nation of the United States of America. How many people do you know who are claiming to be a follower of Christ and have no idea what that truly means? Like, like their idea of Jesus and what it means to be his follower is as foreign, as different as Jesus' idea of Messiah from Patton. 
No concept of sacrifice or effort or work or dedication that, in, that you know, that it involves. They, they, like I said, they just want to say a prayer and, oh, good, now all, everything's good. And Jesus says, do you hear the words right in the middle of, of Mark? Jesus says, don't you understand yet? So the question for us this morning, how's your vision? How's your eyesight? This morning, through the words of Mark, Jesus himself is turning to you, looks you dead. (laughs) Imagine Jesus right now just looking you dead in the face and saying, who do you say that I am? Do you really see Jesus' plan and purpose as the Messiah? Do you you fully understand what it means to be his follower? Or have you settled for some lesser or watered-down version of faith? We need to be like the disciples, like the Pharisees, like the blind man, people of the second touch. Right now, this morning is your second touch. Do you see that? Right now, Jesus is still laying his hands on your eyes and says, man, I want you to see this. I want you to see clearly. I want you to see what it means to be my follower. I want you to see what it means to give your whole life to something. To be, to be crucified with me. I want you to know the mystery. Don't you understand yet? So I know there's a big challenge wrapped up in there, and I hope it doesn't come in a, I hope you know me and know my heart that it doesn't come in a condescending or hateful or cruel way, but the very, very truth of, of God's word is right here for all of us to see my big fear for the church, my big fear for, for Franklin is that we don't understand that too many people claim Christ and have no idea what that means. They claim to be a follower of Christ, but there's, there's no reflection of that in their lives in, in ways that are practical or matter or, or, or sacrificial. And Jesus says, ah, do you really understand? Do you understand yet? And maybe our mission Maybe our mission, your, your mission to your neighbors is to be that second touch. Not to be condescending or cruel or hateful or send out mean tweets about Halloween. Okay, we want a lot of people to Christ with all our mean, hateful Christian tweets about Halloween. But our role is to be people of the second touch who go and place our hands on our friends and neighbors and say, you know, can I talk to you about what it really means to be a follower of Jesus Christ? In just a moment, we're going to enter into a time of communion, and uh, we've got the station set up around the room. Uh, it's, a, it's a mysterious thing that Jesus invites us to, to share in, his, his, in the brokenness of, a bo- of his body and, and to share in his blood, to, to unite ourselves with Christ again, right? To unite ourselves with the idea of who, who is the Messiah to unite ourselves again every week, to come back again and unite ourselves again with who is, who is the Messiah and, and, and who am I in relation to him? How am I following him? 
And so I, I challenge you, as you enter into this time of communion, you know, we want to give you freedom. Maybe you need your own quiet time, and that's great. But maybe you also need to respond. God, put something on your heart. Maybe you recognize that you haven't been seeing clearly, or, or there's ways that we can pray for you, serve you. We want you to create this space for you to respond also, but also to, to commune with each other. I don't like the idea that communion has become this just solo thing. Faith was never supposed to be this solo idea. It was always meant to be communal. We're always here to help each other to understand more. And so maybe as you take the elements of communion this morning, just turn to the person next to you in line and just, just answer the question, who do you say Jesus is? Let's start there. Let's proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. Who do you say he is? How would you answer that question? And if you say he's the Messiah, well, what does that mean? Enter into communion with Christ, not just through taking of the elements, but with your, with your whole self, with your, um, with your words, even with your, with your actions during this time. Who do you say that Jesus is? Are you with me? Are your brains hurting? Is that too much for you? Let me say a prayer. Father God, I thank you so much for this teaching. It's so much bigger than me, and uh, I apologize for, for showing a video with horrible language. Um, but God, I hope, I hope the point is, is there. God, help us to see, see clearly. Help us to, to see clearly who you are and what you were doing and how you moved and responded. Help us to look past our own kind of preconceived ideas about what it means to be a follower. God, let us look straight at your text, straight at your words, straight at the words of Jesus, and, and let those words pierce us right to the heart. Don't let us be, be these, these, these hard-hearted people who, even though we're in the boat with you, don't even know who you are and, and how to respond to you. Father, come right now through the power of your Holy Spirit. I, I, don't, I don't know how the Holy Spirit works, and I, and I don't all, definitely don't always understand it, but I know that it does work. And so, God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, come and put your hands on every single one of us today. Give us clear eyes about what it means to be a follower of your son, Jesus, of what it means to be a follower of you. Father God, I can think of no better time to enter into this kind of, of, of reflection and questioning than as we come around the table of communion, as we remember the sacrifice of the Messiah, of your son, Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So Father God, we love you. We offer you ourselves we enter into this time of communion. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, everyone together says, Amen. So I invite you to stand up, talk to each other. Who do you say that Jesus is? And we'll continue our worship in just a moment.